I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Joanna O'Leary, an editor at the paper, and I'm joined today by one of our longest standing contributors, David Trotter, whose piece in the latest issue is about the writer Elizabeth Bowen. It's a review of a selection of Bowen's stories edited by Tessa Hadley and published by Vintage, and of two of her novels, The Hotel from 1927 and Friends and Relations from 1931, both recently reissued by Anchor. Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Hello. The piece is really a consideration of Bowen's work as a whole. It teases out the various complexities and contradictions that distinguished her life in fiction, her relationship with Ireland and its colonial legacy, her fixation on dysfunctional family dynamics, and her very distinctive and at times obtuse style. We'll go on to talk about these issues in detail, but um, let's begin by talking a little bit about her background so Bowen was born in 1899 into a wealthy Anglo-Irish family. Her ancestors had come to Ireland with Cromwell in 1649 and in the 1770s built Bowen Court, a large country house on a vast estate in North Cork, which Bowen then inherited on her father's death in 1930. The Anglo-Irish big house, which in her own words was ignobly got, stands at the centre of her imagination, David, could you say a little bit more about her background and how her status within the Protestant ascendancy influenced her work? Well, it's certainly a most unusual background because I think, I mean, not many modern writers can claim to have inherited a genuine stately pile as she did. And of course, it was, as you've been suggesting, a stately pile with freighted with um, political controversy. And I think what's interesting in a way is her preparedness to address that inheritance and that controversy directly and most notably in um, Bowen's Court which is a book she published in 1944 which is a remarkable account of her um, family's occupancy of this house in North Cork um, since the very beginnings but it's also a history of the the, the rise and fall of the Anglo-Irish ruling class. And I think she was um, a true believer um, in the tradition of Edmund Burke in the civilising mission of the big house in its area, but also in the, in the country more generally. But this was for her, I mean, from the very outset, a troubled inheritance. It's a troubled birthright because um, in the winter of 1906, when she was seven, her father suffered uh, the latest in a series of uh, breakdowns and had himself certified. And she and her mother went to live in England on the, on the Kent coast. Although her father eventually 
recovered, she never really got back home to Bowen's court or to Ireland, really, in that sense. She never fully settled either in England or in or in Ireland. Um, and Sean O'Fallon, uh, the Irish writer who got to know her in the late 1930s and indeed became her lover, I think he really put his finger on it because he said that that she she felt herself she never felt she felt herself to be a, a resident alien in both countries in both Ireland and England and I think that's a very good way of putting it and that sense of rootlessness of never quite belonging anywhere certainly got into her fiction and it may be part of the reason for the appeal of that fiction today. Sean Freelon, I should say for our listeners also um, in an inspired act of commissioning as her ex-lover wrote a piece for the LRB on on Bowen in, in 1982 and he talks about her split-mindedness um, her the cloven-hearted nature of her character and her work I suppose and David in the piece you, you, you talk a lot about the difference between heredity and environment this um, binary that Bowen establishes and she talks about her work in relation to her life could you say a little a little bit about that maybe? Yes certainly I, I, I think that it might be important just to note first of all that I mean O'Fallon is a extraordinarily interesting witness because he was a, a, a militant Republican who fought against the British in the War of Independence in 1920. And it was IRA policy to clear the Anglo-Irish gentry out of the country by burning their houses down. And a lot of houses in North Cork were burned down, but not Bones Court. So why was that and there's a very interesting footnote in the, the part of of um Bain's court when she comes to talk about this episode where she just says i cannot go into this i cannot go into this and i'm you know that's 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 um pretty high in the annals of gnomic utterance mm-hmm. why was it and why couldn't she go into it and I mean, it seems that the the, the Bowen scholar uh, uh, Neil Corcoran was making a program about her in the in the late nineteen nineties, and he interviewed people in the area, and they said that the local branch of the IRA, some of whose members were working in the house or had worked in the house, held a meeting in the house itself, at which it was decided that they wouldn't actually weren't actually going to burn it down. So, and and her father had warned her that they might burn it down. So it's an extraordinary episode, really. We still don't know what happened and that fed into her fiction and fed into her her second not second novel she wrote the last September which is set in a in a big house modeled very clearly on Bones Court and it's actually a kind of brave decision to write about recent history she said it was a, a novel with a with 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 a texture of history and it was very brave to write about controversial re- recent history in which her family was so central but that's an attempt to kind of work through I mean the gravity of, of her inheritance so there is a there is a lot there in terms of 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 heredity and all everything associated with Bowen's court and it's and the politics of Bowen's court was her heredity but then as you say she she moved to, to England and something else happened then which was in um, in September 1912 when she would have been I guess 13 her mother died of cancer and at that point she so there was a kind of double dislocation move from from Ireland to England and then from a nuclear family mother father daughter imperfect but still a nuclear family to really she was then looked after by a kind of a team of distant relatives what 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 her biographer Victoria Glendinning calls a battery of aunts 
So there was this further displacement or dislocation, which, in, in, which involves being looked after these strange people. So that's when the cleft between heredity and environment emerges. So heredity was really Bowen's court and all of that and, and, and the values associated with it. Environment was basically having to deal with whatever outlandish situation you happen to find yourself in. And it was really that, it was environment, I think, that, that made her a writer, because it was the outlandish situations that fired her imagination. And that's what, what happens. And I mean, you know, if you, if, I know you, as you know yourself, when you're, you're reading the novels, you spend the first chapters struggling to work out who everyone is and what they can possibly be doing there. And the answer to that is usually that they're an aunt or an uncle or a cousin of some kind. And cousins are absolutely indispensable in Bowen. You couldn't do anything at all without them. And it was inevitable, I think, that she would actually come to write a, a novel called Friends and Relations. Uh, mm. Because what you really like to do was to bring together people who are neither holy friends nor holy relations and see what happens. Yes, and you begin the piece with a very striking observation that there are more weird households in Bowen's novels than in any other comparable writer. And perhaps given her own family background, it's sort of understandable that she's fixated on these unorthodox family dynamics. But what is it about cousins in particular um, that interests her, do you think? Why why cousinhoods and why does she you know, explore this um, at such length in her work? I don't know. I think I think cousins are, are are perfectly placed between friend and relation. You know, they are the kind of you know. There's familiarity and there's distance. They are technically families, as 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 we all know, but they're rather these rather strange creatures who drift in and out and come attached to some other kind of set of people, and you never quite know what to make make of them. But by that very fact of course they are exciting and dangerous perhaps even in ways that the closer relations are and so I think she was always looking for that perfect kind of spot the sweet spot if you like between a relation and a friend and that's where all the energy all the kind of dynamics of her of her stories play, take place in that kind of area. There's, a, there's another line from the piece I wanted to, to pick up here. Um, the weird household is an assault course in atmosphere and you talk quite a lot about um atmosphere in the piece you mentioned Bowen's annoyance that people didn't discuss the where of her writing that they tended to focus on the the symbolism or the psychology but one of the things you then go on to to argue very persuasively is that place doesn't loom large in her work at least in, in the way that she perhaps wanted partly because um, and I'm quoting from your piece here her fiction's uniqueness lies in its versatile modern understanding of place as an inner landscape so there's a twinning in the work, if you like, between the outer worlds and a character's mental state. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and how you see how you see atmosphere working, I suppose? Yes, well, um, she wasn't a regional novelist. I mean, the, the, the Bowen's North Cork is not a mythical terrain like Hardy's Wessex, which exists independently of the characters and indeed sometimes entirely overshadows them. And what she was interested in instead was what she called place feeling. That's to say the relation of a particular person to a particular place at a particular moment in time. And I think the best way to think about that is to say that she dealt in atmosphere because atmosphere is inside us, but it's also around us. Um, atmosphere is what, a, is what a person makes of a place while in the process being, in some sense, made by it. It's, it's, it's a mood. It's something we create by the way we happen to be feeling but it's also a milieu. It's an environment shaped by forces beyond our control. It's, I mean, just to, to, to pick on some of the, the terms that she herself uses, it's, it's a habitat. 
or it's a climate even. So it's these much larger, all enveloping frames of reference, as well as something incredibly intimate. And I think that's why she spent so much time really trying to, to, to think about and, and, and to develop atmospheres in our fiction, because she wanted to, to capture, yes, the, the, the kind of the intensity of the interactions we have with, with the world. And, you know, you quote the, the bit from Bullen herself, who talks about amorphousness being a kind of fundamental condition of human experience, and, and that that prompts us um, to kind of obsessively wish to acquire outline, to take shape, to be, to be unmistakably demarcated. And I'm struck that the characters in her novels always seem to come into focus through a careful description, not of the characters themselves, but of their surroundings. So there's a strange sense in which we see the characters better by looking at something else. And that's kind of how atmosphere seems to work. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's that, that sense of, of, of a kind of a beginning or, or an opening onto a world. It's, it's, it's quite hard to characterise exactly what happens, but that we do start immediately with a person already in a place or not not necessarily already in a place, in fact, because that's, I mean, her fiction um, consists so much of arrivals and departures. And I think perhaps that's where... I, speaking of that sort of modern, modern or versatile sense of place, what I what I mean by that is that the, the place is a is as, as much a matter of of arrival and departure. Um, that's to say of, of of anticipation and then of a kind of decompression as you as as you leave it as, as all the atmosphere deflates, and it's very much a matter of, of as much of, of what we create as of any kind of um, more settled or traditional notion of place, and that goes back very much as I, as I think we were saying earlier to her kind of sense of sense of rootlessness. She was always arriving at places, and you get this intense opening of a scene as she arrives at the place. And I always like it that the, the novel she was writing, the fragment of the novel she was writing when she died, and it's called The Driveway. It's, 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 it's you know, the whole of this scene is set on the approach to one of these kind of big houses. So it's really, it's the idea that, that the place is created as much in anticipation and, and in memory as it is in experience that makes her modern, I think. And you get that that sense of, you know, she always felt this lack quite intensely and that the kind of almost glotted surface of the work it's so richly descriptive is almost that compensation it's providing or filling in that kind of yes that that gap or, or the outline is, is being filled in all the time and I think I just you know I think that that, that and you that she felt herself both in her life and and in her vision that you that when you are in, in a kind of an environment um or an, an in, inhospitable environment if you're in one of these kind of outlandish situations i mean there is something kind of darwinian about her her fiction and about her approach you know that you have to you, you have to sink or swim she says and you have to adapt to an often hostile environment and one of the ways in which she did her, that herself was was to perform and i always like there's another lit, wonderful little um comment by ophelan about about her the way she was with friends the way she was in, in you know socially as, as as it were which is that he talked about it as dressage so I can just imagine her sort of, you know, in Olympic style, taking her horse across the across the arena, dressage. But he also said that there was this kind of other side to her, that, which that she was farouche, that she was wild, so that the the dressage would be would in, be interrupted every now and then by something much more dramatic and, and wild. But but this idea of, of of you perform in order to survive, I think, and that's really that's what as you know, as you were saying about the, the amorphousness that she endows her characters with. Will 
all they have to perform in order to survive and that's they have to sink or swim Yes, and I, I mean, Wolf was quite, she, she knew Wolf quite well, but Wolf was quite rude about that that performativity in person, wasn't she? She describes her as a very honourable, horse-faced, upper-class, hard, constricted mind. But that sense of, of striving to kind of occupy a personality it comes across quite strongly in the fiction too. I, I wonder, David, if, if um, it would be interesting to read a little bit from one of the one of the novels, perhaps, just to give people a sense of, of what we're talking about here when, when we're discussing the atmosphere in the work, because it really is quite unique. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, just to say, and I'll probably come back to this, but I mean, that Wolf was such a dominant presence. And so that a yeah. kind of, you know, an, 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 an audience with Virginia was the kind of, <laughs> was, was initiation right for all sorts of young writers. And I think that particularly young women writers. But I think the, the, the passage we might read was, was, was from the heat of the day, Mm. Uh, Second World War novel, which is uh, published in, in 1948, it was set mostly in London, but it does involve a couple of expeditions to Ireland. And one of these um, expeditions, the, the heroine um, Stella Rodney arrives at Mount Morris, which is another of these kind of Anglo-Irish big houses, which her son Roderick has just inherited inevitably from his father's cousin, cousin's indispensable as ever, and I mean, she's been there before. In fact, it was the house in which Rodney was conceived. And the caretaker's daughter, Mary, is conducting her upstairs to her bedroom in near total darkness. And to me, this is, this is absolutely echt bowen atmosphere. Indeed, the familiarity of the house was startling. As a whole, it rose to the surface in her, as though something weighting it to the bottom had let go expectancy rather than memory from now on guided her she could not tell at which moment of her return journey the sensory train had started itself alight now she seemed to perceive on all sides round her and with a phantasmagoric clearness everything that for the eye the darkness hid the declivities and the treads of the staircase the rounded glimmer of its venetian window ever wholly extinguished only by blackest night the creak of the lobby flooring under the foot, and the sifted near and farness of smells of plaster, pelts, wax, smoke, weathered woodwork, oiled locks and outdoor trees preceded themselves in her as she followed Mary. Knowledge of all this must have been carried in her throughout the years, which in these minutes fell away. So extraordinary sense of the reappearance of memory as expectancy. So this atmosphere, uh, this place feeling, is a feeling at once about the past or a thought about the past and a feeling or a thought about the future at the same time. Memory become expectancy. And that's, I think, is an extraordinary example of, 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 of her conjuring of atmosphere. Mm. And these moments when she's describing the big house, particularly in her fiction, the way in which time sort of collapses is also quite interesting. And you have that incredibly kind of rich historical text where you're talking about memory, but it, it's sort of unfolding through this exterior objective sort of description. And, and it works in quite an unusual way. I mean, it's it's different to somebody like Wolf, who's, who's writing from, from in, so much from inside a consciousness I mean, how, how, how do you rate them or how do you 
are they similar to one another? Are they not? What do you kind of make of make of that? Yeah, well, I think that's yes, uh, a, a very important question because because of Wolf's kind of extraordinary dominance, really. And, and I think that there were a number of, of, of younger women writers making their way in the interwar years who um, were very conscious of the, the shadow she cast and did, as you've just suggested, did think of her very much in terms of someone whose emphasis was on personal consciousness, the the atoms falling on the mind, as, as she put it, and that's what she was trying to capture. And I think that the whole emphasis on place feeling in Bowen, but also in other writers and in, in atmosphere, in environment, this rather Darwinian uh, taste to some of Bowen's fiction, that all of that was in part a way to manoeuvre out from beneath Wolfe's shadow and of course what she what they thought about wolf or what Bowen rather thought about wolf was what what she most admired in her was something that we would perhaps call call her modernism but Mm. which Bowen called a savage intractability of the spirit which must experiment the savage intractability of the spirit which must experiment Mm. Uh, so that was wolf must experiment and I think that Bowen was a great stylist. I mean, that the passage I've just read, it, it slows you down. You have to pick your way along the sentences. And that slowing down is, is a very important effect. It's what really creates the atmosphere, if you like, as you're, as you're going along. Um, and I think the thing about, but, 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 so that she didn't want to experiment, what Bowen wanted to do was to spring surprises. And I think that's the great thing about her fiction, the way she springs her surprises, that, that, that her modernism was a kind of, stealth technology you know it's it, it's come and gone before you know it's there mm. um, and so she, her, her her idiosyncrasies her idiosyncrasies of grammar and syntax and and idiom are they're not a an authorial signature they're not a, a kind of calling card they're there for a particular narrative purpose I, I wanted to ask a little bit about how we situate Bowen um because as you see in the piece there is a kind of clear attachment to the trappings of the realist novel and then this kind of grammatical, syntactical, idiomatic peculiarity and her neologisms. And she, of course, she's funny because she disliked Joy. She thought, you know, he reduced everything to jelly in the effort to try to explain what he found funny to the reader. But but she did. She did admire Wolf. And is, is she a modernist writer? I mean, it, it, I mean, what you're suggesting, I suppose, that she's she's playing with it in her own way. But there is something much more traditional about her approach to it too she didn't want things to fall apart in some way I mean it's almost cinematic I guess one of the things the famous thing about modernism is you can't really make films about any any of the kind of great modernist novels they don't quite work cinematically they're too fractured and there's too much interior consciousness but of course Bowen it's it's so cinematic as as you're reading the passages it sort of slows you down and you see everything very very clearly but trying to think about her in in terms of a tradition is quite difficult I think Yes, I mean, uh, I, well, I think I, I would say that you know she didn't, she never really kind of presented herself as a modernist or thought of herself in those terms. That wasn't that wasn't her entry into the, the marketplace, and that she would quite happily have thought of herself as being in the tradition of British domestic fiction from Jane Austen all the way through to the early E.M. Forster, and those were both writers she admired intensely. 
Um, she said that as a teenager, she had saturated herself in, in Forster's novels. And Forster, of course, was precisely the writer who was being outflanked by the modernists, by Joyce and, and by Virginia Woolf in the 1920s as this different alternative model appeared. And I think what, what I'd say about Berlin is that Woolf's description of her mind as constricted is certainly very unfair. And, OK, she didn't want to write like Woolf, she didn't want to write like Joyce, but she did actually quite enjoy Finnegan's Wake because mm. she thought that Joyce had had so much fun in inventing his own universal language that she just liked his kind of the, the pleasure he took in it but for her the end was to actually work within the conventions or I suppose we would say domestic realism but then to spring her surprises and so that's I think really where those idiosyncrasies come into play that these kind of disturbances, if you like, of, of the, the dressage, the dressage of the, of the prose, the prose style with its, its its wonderful kind of elegant gait, its wonderful rhythms, but then they are kind of interrupted, or I think we feel that they're interrupted by the occasion eruption of of one of these idiosyncrasies. And we could actually look at one if you think that would be a, a yes, good idea. yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah. my, my favorite I really like is that. Her, her triple negatives. I mean, I don't. I can't think of any other writer, either then or perhaps subsequently, who was who was kind of fond of triple negatives. And following these triple negatives is a bit like, you know, being a hamster on its wheel that you spin round and round. And and I think the one I like most is actually in the in the last September, which the, mm. the novel, you know, set in 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 in, a, in an Irish big house, Danielstown, which is also based on very much on Bowen's court, and. What happens is in, is this that in, in this particular idiosyncrasy signals the end of a kind of violent flirtation between um, Hugo Montmorency, who's an old friend of the Danielstown family and is staying with his wife over the summer, and this extraordinary explosive woman, uh, Marda Norton, who arrives in the middle section of the novel and causes an immense um, stir, stirs up the atmosphere no end, and. Having stirred too hard, as it were, she leaves abruptly, thus denying Hugo a dramatically reproachful farewell, which is what he'd really been hoping for. So this is just a little passage when when he's failing to say his dramatic farewell. Marda turned half away from them, tapped a tune on the edge of the mantelpiece, laughed at every shade of a silence, and felt how resolutely Hugo did not look at her now. There was to be no opportunity for what he must not say to be rather painfully not said. And that's the bit I, that's the bit I love. And that's, that's the surprise that's been sprung here and tells us that this particular atmosphere created by the flirtation throughout the whole of the middle section of the novel has really come to an end. So there's something Hugo must not say to Marda. He would like the opportunity not to say it, but he's denied even that. And that's what it feels like to have an atmosphere broken or to disappear from an atmosphere, as it were. And I think that's, I mean, what other writer can you think of who would have actually slipped that in, as it were, in her kind of rather sly but incredibly effective way? And for all the resistance to psychology and things like that, of course, you know, you feel it with him. It's, it's perfectly enacted in this very crisp but kind of complicated sentence. And, and you go back into his mind and into all of the all of that that kind of that negativity and and it's kind of redoubles and triples and and that's kind of how she does it and it's it's really extraordinary well, it's a frequent experience in reading a novel you think whoa what you know what happened there has she been just been dumped has he just been dumped and and you realize that and 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 of course what she's capturing there is is 
also the pain of that experience. I mean, there is a kind of, despite all the dressage, there's a kind of rawness of feeling in these novels. And very often it comes, at, you know, when an atmosphere has, has, as it were, collapsed in on itself, as, as, as happens here. Yes, and it's also, it's also quite funny. I mean, she's a very funny writer and, and there's an enormous amount of satire there. And the way in which she manages to weave that through this, this quite ornate and almost decorous style is really impressive. I mean, I was struck um, looking at some of the criticism by how how much stick she got really for her kind of high-flown vocabulary. And for these, I mean, in modernist terms, we would call them very small transgressions compared to, you know, somebody like Wilfred Joyce. And, you know, pe- people insisting that you had to read sentences several times and that, you know, she was, in- she was incredibly difficult and isn't something that I particularly find myself when I read her. I mean, what's your sense of it, David? Do you, would, would you call her a difficult writer? It seems strange to me that, that she has this reputation. Well, I think that um, part of the problem is that difficulty has been characterised as a, as a kind of literary ideology. I mean, we assume that the writers we call modernists set out to be difficult. And in elevating those writers into the canon, as happened in the second half of the 20th century, we've dignified difficulty. Uh, We've given it a very special status, uh, something that the avant-garde uniquely brings to our experience of of reading fiction or other other forms of literature. Um, And... In a way, there's been a kind of spillage of, of the idea of difficulty onto her simply because she was around at the same time. But I think that's not true. I think I, I think that precisely the difficulty appears for a reason. It's there to, to slip, to, to, to trip us up, if you like. And yes, that that is an, a sort of opacity. There is an amazing opacity to some of her sentences, um, and that opacity does bring us to a halt. But it's in order to make us reflect on what is actually happening at that time in the story. And once that effect has been produced, once we've been made to think, then on the whole, the narrative tends to resume its its kind of even pace and until we get to the next difficulty, the next surprise. Yes, that's really interesting. You do get a sense that there's never a word wasted. Everything is there for a purpose. It's very, it's a well-made machine, as it were. But thinking about her her reputation, I wanted to ask, I suppose, about or to touch on the merit of her of her novels relative to her stories. When you agreed to do the piece, David, you said you hope to figure out in the course of writing it why you'd only ever half liked the novels. And that was something I, I, I felt, too. I, I preferred the stories and her reputation as, as a story writer does in some ways outflank her reputation as a novelist. But you know, rereading them, how do they stand up? And, and what was your sense of, 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 how, of the ways in which they differed from the stories? Well, I, I, mean, I think, um, like you, I expect I first came to Bowen through her stories, and, and some of her stories are very, very widely anthologised. And I think, I mean, just speaking to people in, people in general, they're more likely to know one of her stories than they are to know one of her novels. And I think that's something that's only, balance has only just sort of... Um, begun to be corrected a bit and I thought I suppose in a, in a way once I'd established to my own satisfaction that 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 she's she that she is a writer of place or place feeling or atmosphere I began to think about the ways in which atmosphere appears or atmosphere is represented in the short stories as opposed to the novels and 
in a way, atmosphere is at its purest in the short story. There is a kind of extraordinary kind of splash. And I'm, I'm thinking, I know there's a story that we, that, that we both like, um, Summer Night, which starts with a woman driving through the Irish countryside and then into a small town in a car. And she's driving towards an assignation, towards a rendezvous with with her lover. And it's a moment of, of, of intense excitement. I mean, the atmosphere is rendered over a couple of pages. And I have to say, I mean, it, it is very cinematic. And, uh, and it, I, I always think at that point of, 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 of Hitchcock, of, of, the, of the scene in Rebecca when um, Laurence Olivier and, and Joan Fontaine are approaching the stately house in an, open, an open-topped sports car and it just begins to rain. And then you finally get a shot of the house through the windscreen. And in both the story and in the film, that experience of approach is the most extent, intense experience that the, the, the woman in, in, in both stories will, will actually feel. And there's an extraordinary way in which, in which because it's the most tensely, there's an extraordinary sense in which the story is actually already over in those opening pages even though we don't know it until we get to the end because nothing quite like it will ever happen to the protagonist again so there is you know atmosphere flourishes it's crucial to the stories but what's different about the novels and what in the end made me think that I actually prefer that I would more likely to be likely to reread the novels than the short stories is that in the novels atmospheres form develop intensify and then exhaust themselves and in that process, we understand that what at first looked like a mood, like a feeling projected by the protagonist, is in fact an environment, an environment shaped by forces beyond their individual control, but beyond, beyond the character's control. So what begins as a, looking like a mood ends up looking like a milieu, which is a much more complex structure and that's again is the kind of darwinian emphasis of bowen's fiction that there there is no mood there is no kind of purely personal sensation that isn't in some sense also a milieu an environment and thus shaped by forces beyond our control and i think that's what the novels give you that the short stories really by their essence can't and and you write in the piece very interestingly that you say mood cannot outrun circumstance and th- there's a way in which you know several of these characters they kind of consider themselves selves rebels, but they're they're made hostages to fortune by circumstance, and you know and sh- she was clearly you know incredibly imprisoned by you know her family history, the class into which she was born. But in a way, I suppose the novel gives there's the scope to explore all the ways in which you're not free it, that that you need the, the the length of the novel, you need the novel to run its course to kind of fully understand the extent to which these characters are sort of hemmed in and maybe you don't get that as much in, in the stories i think the most i mean the wonderful example of that is really in, in again in the heat of the day which is the passionate affair between the heroine and robert kelway um, so stella and, and robert and that's a love affair and, and love is the most intense of all moods it's a mood intense enough to exclude absolutely everything else but here it's associated from the outset with a very specific historical circumstance namely september 1940 the blitz and uh, it's it's a sweet autumn bowen says for both of them it's made sweet by their love for each other but that sweetness also incorporates 
the taste and the smell of bomb damage, the dust rising from all these bomb sites the morning after, uh, and so on. So already the mood is, is a milieu. And she puts it very explicitly, and this is what I think really what a novel does, and she says, the relation of people to one another is subject to the relation of each to time, to what is happening. So our most intimate relations to each other are also a relation to our time. And what happens in, in the novel is that this particular atmosphere, which is their, their love for each other, it too forms and develops and um, exhausts itself and exhausts itself in a much more general mood or milieu, which is that of a kind of loss of collective faith in the, the period after the retreat from Dunkirk and, and the army that came back from Dunkirk, and which she called the, the raw black bitterness of the army returned from, from which, is, which is a loss of faith in, in the justice and the efficient conduct of the war a war that at that point was still very much um, in the balance. And that raw black bitterness invades and destroys the relationship between the lovers. And yes, that novel, I mean, she's a, she's a terrific historical novelist in a way, a social novelist. Um, and that novel, particularly her war novel, is really, really fascinating. I mean, you know, it's it's portrayal of, of London, you know, during the Blitz is frightening in some ways and, you know, incredibly atmospheric. But I was I was also interested in this idea in the piece that the new media that was on the rise during Bowen's lifetime influenced her work. And so she's also in, engaging with kind of technological innovations and things like that. Um, and you, you, you quote her saying, um, you know, the modern life is telephone written. Um, and I found that quite intriguing. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more really about, about the telephone as a social medium and about the ways in which she used used it and the opportunities it created for her to engineer a, a particular kind of atmosphere or, or milieu for her for her characters. Yes, well, I think I mean, your term engineer is, is exactly right, because in a way what she was in, interested in was the, the engineering of other kinds of atmosphere as, as demanded by what was happening in society and what people were feeling. So it's the engineering, and that's where media like uh, the telephone or the radio come in and I think she's what's interesting about her is that it's not so much what she has to say about a specific medium like like the telephone or the radio but but her sense of new forms of experience of, of connect what we would call connectivity I think as something which is beginning to shape people's lives so that that people begin to live through the telephone it's the telephone as a social medium that really interests her interests her most and and I th- I think to me what's happening there and what's again makes her so modern is that she's beginning to move from the idea of atmosphere to the idea of atmospherics that's to say of disturbances of an electromagnetic origin which interfere with signals which interfere with communication by by electronic media and I think she was the first novelist of what the 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 media theorist Friedrich Kittler called uh, the Olympian frequency domain that there are all these frequencies from alpha to gamma, which exist outside the scope of hum- unaided human perception, but which can be used with the aid of machines, either to communicate or to make stuff happen. And I think she was extraordinarily aware of that. And she thought of, so when she was thinking about radio, it wasn't, it was, it was really radio as, as, as one of these kind of frequencies which exists beyond unaided human perception. And that's something that, she, that really becomes a focus of the heat of the day again um, in the 
the the character of of, of Louis Lewis, who is a who is a um, a working class woman, works in a munitions factory. Uh, she's a war orphan, um, and she becomes obsessed with propaganda. Um, the propaganda that she becomes in herself a kind of antidote to the raw black bitterness bitterness caused by Dunkirk, because she's this kind of exemplary exemplary figure, and she starts seeing herself as it were reflected and talked about in the newspapers. But there's always something beyond that, beyond the propaganda, and she begins to become fascinated by the by the heroine um, Stella. Rodney and she begins to stalk her and the more she gets to see and, and, and to know about Stella the more she comes becomes convinced that there is something as it were beyond what the newspapers are telling us or beyond what the radio broadcasts are telling us and that's really Bowen's fullest exploration of the Olympian frequency domain and it's hard to think of any other writer of the time who was anything like as close to doing something like that. Yes, and you, you write, you know, that this this transitivity, this this new media brought a kind of transitivity into being, which demanded a new, a new kind of protagonist in some of her novels. So Theodora and Friends and Relations, but but also Louis in the Heat of the Day, and and that you know, so many of, of the characters we've been talking about appear to suffer from a kind of lack of definition. But then there there are these characters who appear to have a surplus of it. Louis being being one of them and you say you know this requires the virtual environment as as though that could kind of refract it or or, or mop up the surplus in some way and so I suppose she's using the media as a, as a way of, of doing that of, of mopping up or, or refracting personality. We, 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 we always have to find new ways to shape ourselves or new ways to find shape and and that's really what social media offer. It's a, it's, it's a new way to, 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 to actually end the amorphousness or, or it could be, if you like, or that's what it might look like, um, a new way to take shape. And that's why I think that, that she, she, she was able to sense the power. And I always think I'll just go back to there's one of the things she said about, about uh, the experience of, of, of this, this, this relocation from Ireland to, to England and the battery of aunts and being looked after by this kind of team of distant relatives. And she described it as a grapevine. She said that you know, we, we were taken up by the grapevine of Anglo-Irish relatives who passed us from hand to hand. Now, the idea of the grapevine, it's already a communication system. So, you know, the, the kinship network is already a kind of WhatsApp group. She was thinking in those terms and her experiences and her interest in the weird household if you like, the, the interest in, in what you do when you find yourself in, a, in, in an outlandish situation. It was always, I, she was kind of predisposed to write about, to back, write about new media, I feel, about the Olymp- Olympian frequency domain. And, and she ended up doing so. And I think that, that, that Louis Lewis is, is, again, perhaps you know, a really interesting example of, of, the, of one of the kind of, the people with a, those people with a, with a surplus of personality who ends up straying really in her search for ways to kind of absorb it soak it up straying into what we would call the dark web Mm. and there's there's this intriguing observation towards the end of the piece that you know in in some ways it's very interesting to reread Bowen now um in sort of the heyday of, of the internet novel as it were and um, you, you can imagine her as a kind of very strange progenitor to to some of some of the writers. You know, I mean, you mentioned Lauren Euler, you mentioned Patricia Lockwood in the piece, but she was already thinking about networks um, and the way things things go wrong and signals kind of get, get mixed up and the way that that can be exploited or, or ruinous for for people or by people. 
But I wondered if we might end, David, you reading a little bit from the heat of the day, a, a passage with Louis um, about Louis that sort of describes some of the stuff that um, we've been talking about and gives people a feel. I think that, that would bring us right up to date, as it were. So, I mean, Louis, originally she finds that the mood and, and milieu to, to, to suit her in, in, in propaganda and newspapers and radio and she's perfect for that. And that gives her a great sort of feeling of, of peace and, and, and contentment. And then she starts to, to stalk Stella. Um, and she recognises Stella as a kind of soul in torment. And that recognition exposes a lack in the atmosphere that's been created for her and that's absorbed her, the atmosphere created by, by propaganda. And this is the description of how she begins to move, as it were, to edge into the dark web. Louis felt herself entered by what was foreign. She exclaimed in thought, oh no, I wouldn't be her at the moment when she most nearly was. Think now what the air was charged with night and day, ununderstandable languages, music you did not care for, sickness, germs. You did not know what you might not be tuning into. You could not say what you might not be picking up. Affected, infected you were at every turn. Receiver, conductor, carrier. Which was Louis? What was she doomed to be? She asked herself, but without words. She felt what she had not felt before. Was it even she herself who was feeling? Could almost have been written now. It's um, absolutely intriguing. Well, thank you so much, David, for speaking to me today and for writing this tremendous piece. And I hope everybody will, who hasn't already read it will do so immediately. Thank you. You can read David's piece in the latest issue of the paper, along with Patricia Lockwood's writing about Marianne Engels Bear, Calm to Bean on the Life of Pessoa, and David Runciman on Michael Wolfe's recent book about the last days of Trump's presidency.